We're in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and we're in our series entitled Ready, and we're, we're getting near the end of it. I mean, we've gone all the way through 1 Thessalonians. We're now um, getting next to the, I mean, getting close to the end of 2 Thessalonians, and it's a pretty action-packed book, is it not? I mean, if you've been like me, I've been blown away at what God has done within this church, how he was speaking to them, seeing what they were going through, how they were facing persecution. They were a small group, a very uh, multicultural church, and all come from different backgrounds to glorify the name of Christ. And what's, what's amazing to me is how they managed to persevere despite hardship. And, and even though they were persevering, Paul writes to encourage them, to help them uh, understand the, the relationship or who they were in Christ. And and as Paul's beginning to end this letter, it were, I, was, I was researching this message, and I remember hearing this great speech uh, uh, by Winston Churchill. And uh, Winston Churchill, if you're familiar with him, he was the prime minister of Great Britain. He was called into service during the middle of World War II, and Great Britain's hope seems dashed, and, and the uh, Nazis seemed like they were going to be invading uh, momentarily. And he goes to address Parliament after he'd been appointed in May, I think it was in around 1940. And he had gone in June, he'd been appointed in May, gone to the, the House of Commons, uh, the Parliament in June, and he delivered this message that uh, was meant to inspire hope because Great Britain was at the precipice or at the, the threshold of disaster. Uh, the Nazi invasion was looming. France had not yet surrendered but was getting ready to surrender and, and the government knew that. They couldn't share that with all of the people yet, but people were scared because what separated them from this Nazi horde was the English Channel, which at its narrowest part was 20 miles between the coast of France and at the longest was about 150 miles away. So they had this small piece of water and they were in on, on an island and they knew that, that Hitler was going to try to advance to, and, and take over Great Britain. And so he goes to address them and speaks to them and he gives this message and I love this message because he it really... Uh, really personifies what, what Winston Churchill stand for. But he says this, We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And even if, which I do not for a moment believe, this island or a large part of it were subjugated and starving, then our empire beyond the seas, armed and guarded by the British fleet, would carry on the struggle until, in God's good time, the new world, with all its power and might, steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of the old. Now, his speech inspired people in ways that not many people could. He was known as a great orator. He was a very educated, very smart man, very well-read man. And undoubtedly, he knew. He was picking up words of a biblical uh, theme. When he was talking about, we shall fight on no matter what. No matter if we're invaded, no matter if, if we face great hostility, no matter where we're at, we're going to continue to fight on. And even if we begin to, we're losing, we, we, and our empire is, or we're crowded in, the Nazis take over, then we know that one day we will be rescued and liberated when this new world comes to replace the old. That's a biblical theme. 
It really is a biblical theme of, of the, the world of Christ, this new heavens and new earth that come in to, to release this world that has been kept in bondage. And I look at his message and I see it as a metaphor of, of his words to the church. Is that Paul's writing to the Thessalonians saying that you've been facing great hostility. You are wondering how you're going to continue on. You're, you're confused about so many different things. But let me tell you this. God is with you and you need to fight on. You need to continue to proclaim the faith. You need to continue to fight sin. You need to continue to love your enemies. You need to continue to, to live this life that God wants you to live. He says, fight on. And that's what he's telling us to do. As he's coming near the end of this letter to us, he's telling us that we need to fight on for our faith. And it's not one that is done with guns or bombs. It is one that is done with love and peace and mission. Meaning that we are continuing to go out, but we don't have to come back. We need to continue to share the message of Christ. We need to continue to testify no matter what goes on in the middle of this world. And right now, this world is confused. I mean, if we're having confusion on what bathroom someone goes to, we, we got issues. And so people are confused, and I'm seeing people up in the air, and they're saying, what is going to happen? And persecution is looming, and it is, but the Bible talks about that. The Bible tells us time and time again, but God tells us no matter what may happen to the culture around us, you continue to live for Christ and testify to his greatness. And today, that's what we're going to look at. How can we testify in the midst of a morally compromised world where everything seems to be going crazy right in front of us? How do we remain steadfast? How do we not let that get to us, that it affects us, that brings us down, that we're depressed? How do we hold on in the midst of this? Because there are many of us, we have, we're, our faith is upset. We see what's going on, not just in our culture, but we see what's going on in the election. And people are wondering who's going to be the, the, the person who's put into office. And I'm reminded of when I was in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I was at a great uh, inner city church. And it was after uh, Barack Obama's first election. And what was amazing was this church was multi-ethnic and, and very multicultural. And he gets up in the front of the entire church and about 2,000 people. And he goes, shame on you. For those that, that think your man is in the White House, shame on on you, and for those that think your person is not in the White House, shame on you, because the man that's in charge of this all is Jesus Christ, and he's the person that we're ultimately looking at. If we put our hope in any earthly man, no matter who it might be, if it's our candidate or not our candidate, our number one loyalty and allegiance is to the King of Kings, and so that's who we need to look to, through, and it's through him. It's not through the lens of parties. It's not through the lens of anything else, but it's through the lens of the scripture and what he has for us. So we are to look at this text to be encouraged because Paul is writing to encourage us to live on and testify to the name of Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to look at today. How can we live on in the midst of our culture? How can we testify to Christ's greatness when our employer is against us or when our spouse is getting ready to leave us or our children are disobedient and seem to be caught in the chains of this, this world and love the things of this world, how do we remain faithful in the midst of such hostility? That's what we're going to look at today. But before we go any further, let's ask and invoke God's spirit to bless us as we seek to understand and study who he is and what he has for us. Our Father and our God, we pray that your spirit might be preeminent, that might draw us unto yourself right now. Lord, your word testifies to our hearts, to our condition, and to the state of our world. And Lord, may we not be upset by the changing waves of circumstance, but may we continually find ourselves anchored to the truth of who you are. 
So Lord, show us how we are to live. Show us how we are to be. Show us where our hope and our encouragement may lay. And Lord, glorify your name in our midst today. We pray your blessing on us. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's jump right into our text. We are in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And we want to start off right in verse 13. So look with me in verse 13. Paul writes, But we ought always to give thanks for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved. Through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in In the truth. See, Paul gives thanks to God for their lives. God loved them and showed them the depth of his love by choosing them to be some of the first people in the history of the world who would be beneficiaries of Christ's atoning work and death on the cross as well as his resurrection from the dead. And Paul writes, wants to encourage them and through them, us, to fight on by reminding us of our amazing salvation. That's point one that I want you to write down. He wants to write and encourage us all about our amazing salvation that is not based on, uh, on any race or, uh, or any background, but it's based solely on Jesus Christ and on him alone, that we have an amazing salvation. Now, why does he write that? Because he knows how quickly people can be upset. And the the Thessalonians were very upset. Again, they were confused about the coming of Jesus. They wondered if they were in Christ or not, if they had missed uh, his coming. So he writes to anchor them by giving them identity. You know, as I mentioned before, we have a massive problem with identity in our world today. We have people that are in gender-fluid situations where they're not sure if they're quite a man or a woman, and you have this this total uh, disregard, craziness that's going on, depending on what bathroom you use, depending on what gender you identify with, not what you biologically are. And we're already seeing abuse of this. Matter of fact, some schools, colleges have already, that had embraced this, have turned away from it because they've seen the abuse that has happened. Uh, You're seeing men now going into uh, women's locker rooms saying that, I feel like I'm a woman with video cameras or cell phones and the school's now removing this but people are just confused about who they are I mean and and confused at the most fundamental level where we're going back to one of the things that we're born with is our gender and so we're trying to understand and people are trying to understand what does that mean and and here Paul's writing not about gender but he's writing it about our identity and who we are in Christ and it begins with coming to know him as lord and savior of our lives so he's writing to us about our salvation that you are the first fruits you have been chosen by almighty God to be his emissary to a lost world God chose you that's an incredible thing And that's the first thing we need to understand about our salvation is that we have been sovereignly chosen. It's not based on our good works. It's not based on our our good deeds or how good looking or how talented we are. But it's based entirely upon God's mercy and sovereign choice. That he decided to use you to exhibit his glory to the world. God chose you. And some people say, and really struggle with this, and they say, why did God choose me and not other people? Why why didn't God choose him? The question is not, why didn't God choose that person? You don't know if they're chosen or not. You won't know until the end of time. The question is, is why did God in the world choose you? Why did God choose you? That's the question. We have to remember that. I mean, Scripture talks and testifies about this in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 through 6, for those who really struggle with this idea of God choosing. Because the reality is, is God chooses us, 
And then there's a reality in which we choose God. But we see here that God chose first. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. God chose you. Why? It's a mystery. God, we know that God does things for his glory. Now, did God didn't have to choose anybody. Some people are, are, are not thrilled by that fact that God would choose someone. Well, the fact that he chose anyone, he, he would have been completely fine, not even to make us or create us, but God chose to make us, and then he chose to send his son to save us, even though there was nothing about us. So it is God's sovereign choice to choose some and not others. God chose you to show the depth of his mercy and grace, to make your life a divine poem that displays and is to be read by a watching world that his words are displayed on your heart and how you have changed and been forgiven and transformed. He chose you to display his glory, but he also wanted us to know that we've been sanctified by his spirit. That's what the next part of the text says. He says, chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Now, through sanctification by the Spirit, the word sanctification literally means to be made holy. And there's two types of sanctification. It's not a term that we use often, very, very often. The first aspect of sanctification, and we've shared this before, is called positional sanctification, where the moment that you trust in Christ, God makes you holy. You are holy not because of what you have done, but because of what Jesus has done for you. So when God sees you now, God the Father sees you, he sees Jesus in you, and you are holy because of your relationship with him. He paid the price for your sin, and he imputed, he gave you his righteousness. So you are righteous in the sight of God, not because of anything that you have done, but entirely because of Jesus. Now that's positional sanctification. Then there's the other side of the coin. It's called progressive sanctification. Now, progressive sanctification, we get this from 1 Peter chapter 1, where uh, in verse 16, when Peter says, be holy, he's, he's talking about God now, he's, he's quoting the words of God, be holy as I am holy. You are to, in your actions, in your life, by your attitude and your choices, to choose to live a life of holiness. So you are positionally sanctified. Now you are to progressively live and work out and become more holy, become more like God. Now, what does that mean? It means that we are to, or how does that happen? It happens only through believing in God's son, believing in God's son. Look at verse 14 with me. It's through sanctification by the spirit and belief in the what? What is that word? Belief in the, you can answer, belief in the there we go. Truth. Belief in the truth. What is the, who is the truth? Jesus. Jesus said this in John chapter 14, verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Good. And then you shall, we all know this one, John chapter 8, verse 32. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. That's not referring to just facts in a court case. That's referring to a person. 
You shall know the truth. It's the truth of who Jesus is. Jesus himself is the personification, the epitome, and the embodiment of, and as well as the testimony of, God's truth to the world. Jesus is the truth. And that is apart from John 8, 44, where the devil is the father of lies. So Jesus is God's truth that is sent to us. It is the Son of God. It is through belief in the Son of God. Now this is where we, we, we differ from those who come to us and say, they, you know, you're okay, I'm okay. The end of our, our faith is the same thing. And, I, and I, I stop and I mean, what do you mean? He goes, well, to be more moral. You know, if your faith makes you more moral, my faith makes me more moral, we're okay. No, it's not the same thing. Because this is something totally different. It's not that our faith can be reduced to just a simple uh, check sheet of moral choices. That's not all our faith is. It's much more than that. It is much deeper than that. it's, It's a belief in God himself and how he has revealed himself to the world. See, God is the gospel. It's not just getting us to change our behavior. It's giving us God himself. And we see this in John chapter 3, verse 16 through 18. Let me show you this verse to you. Many of us know this verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now, this is the next verse, though, that many of us don't know. Verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Or whoever believes in him is not condemned, But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Now, several years ago, I got to go up to, I think it's Winnetka. Anybody been to Winnetka at the Baha'i Temple? There's this big, beautiful temple in the middle of a park, very wealthy suburb of Chicago, a lot of money up in Winnetka, a lot of Northwestern people up there, and uh, a lot of athletes live in that area. And there's this big, huge temple and this great grounds around it. And people go there for wedding photos and to play football out in the grass. And it's beautiful. And I went in the temple and I see there's the verses from all of these different religions. And they all believe that all religions point to God. Well, here, this says something totally different, that not all religions do. And Jesus is saying, and we see here, is believed in the name of the only Son of God. Not a God, not whatever God you want him to be, not just the, the representation or the manifestation of one God, I mean, of, of one God, as many people say that each faith represents the one God. That's not true. It's that it's one God himself. That's what he's saying there, that it's much more than anything that we could see. And we see this again drawn out in Acts chapter 4, verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else. There's nothing else, no other person, not anything else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. He's not saying that Jesus is a pathway, but is the pathway. That's a definite article within Greek. He is the way, the truth, the life, not a way, not a truth, not a life, but the way. He is the bridge between God and man. That's what he is. That's why he had to be incarnate. He had a divine father, and not through the means of procreation that we think and when it comes to physicality uh, or intercourse. It is through God, the Father, in the miraculous way, put Jesus in Mary's womb and, and use parts of Mary in, in, in a mystery we do not know, 
but created, and, and the Son of God stepped into this situation to be born of a woman, to identify with man, but yet without sin, because he didn't have human father, he had a heavenly father, so he could unite the two in one man. This is the mystery of the incarnation, that he was without sin. He is the one through whom that we must be saved, as First Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 says. For there is one God, and there was one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Jesus is God's truth, he is God's way, and he is in fact the personification, embodiment, and object of life both abundant and eternal. As we read in 1 John chapter 5, verse 11 through 12, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. See, it's through Jesus and him alone that we have life. And Paul understood that. And he was reminding the Thessalonians not only of their salvation, but where it leads, namely their destination. So we have salvation and he's reminding him of where it leads in their destination. And this is where I want to go back to our text. Look at verse 14. To this he called you through our gospel, our good news, that's what gospel means, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, Paul showed them that it was through their gospel that they had proclaimed that, they, that these Thessalonians had been saved. Again, we can see through Paul's words that our destination comes as a direct result of the proclamation of God's story. God's story. See, it's about God's story. Everybody's talking about story now, and everyone hits to hear your story and their story. But it begins with God's story. We don't have a story unless it's apart from, unless it's we have God's story first. And that's what Paul says. It's through our gospel that we told you that you came to understand who Jesus Christ is. It's through the gospel. It's through the story of God that God in Christ came to save sinners, of which we are all part of the human race, then we are all sinners. And then he came to save and transform us. And it was through the word of God being proclaimed that faith came. As Romans chapter 10 verse 17 says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. The word of God preached, the, the, the message of the gospel. God gives faith in that moment in time. The ability even to believe. Which is why knowing God's story is so important and why the apostles took false teaching so seriously. See, we need to know the details of God's story to make sure we are revealing God's salvation so that people can get to their destination. Now let's go back to verse 14. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now the word obtain there literally means to make one's own. You are to obtain and make your own what? Jesus' glory. God is giving you Jesus' glory. We might obtain that in its fullness. In other words, we might share in what Jesus has. Think about that. That's the next point you need to write down. To share in what Jesus has. You, if you are, have a follower of Christ, you have placed your faith and trust in him, you get to have what Jesus has. It is yours. It is yours. Think about that now. All of the riches of heaven are yours. All of the, the benefits of eternal life are yours in and through Christ. 
I don't think we get excited enough about this. That's what God has for us in him. We might obtain the glory of Jesus Christ. Now we get a picture of this glory in John, uh, the book of John or uh, book of Matthew, when Jesus is transfigured in front of uh, Jane, I mean, P- Peter and John, and he has Moses and Elijah show up to testify to him. And a picture of his glory, his manifest beauty, his awesomeness. And he gave the apostles just a, a, a down payment of that glory. We see that in the book of John as well. But the fullness of that glory still remains that when, we, uh, when he comes again, he will come in all of his power and his glory. I think we've lost our understanding of what glory is and what is awesome and what is powerful. I think we have become uh, deadened on the inside, to be able to comprehend God's majesty. I mean, you know, I look at, I was watching Star Wars with my daughter the other day. She wanted to see Star Wars. We're watching Star Wars. And I remember watching that as a kid when that big, giant space cruiser comes up and you're like, wow, that's big. It's just huge. And it's all special effects. You know, we have all these special effects and things that we look at today with CGI and, and we see this amazing thing and we go and watch a movie and we see all the graphics and amazed at it, you know, but God blows that out of the water. You know, when I look back at the CG, like the special effects back in the days of, for those that remember Howdy Doody, and you can see the springs, okay? You see all those little things. That's how, I mean, all of this must look I mean, even more in comparison to how awesome God's, and those aren't special effects, those are God effects. When he comes in all of his glory and all of his power, and he is giving you his glory, that we might obtain his glory. You know, First John talks about this and gives us a, it says in First John chapter 3, it says that we shall, we shall, when he comes, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. We will become like Jesus. We will have glorified bodies. That's pretty incredible. And with such a valuable destination, then it would be very important to get the facts regarding how to get there with our salvation. See, it's like a treasure map that shows you how to get to a treasure worth billions of dollars. If you were to bury that, you want to make sure abs- you want to make absolutely sure that you got your map right. And this is also why Paul wrote, "So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter." See, we need to learn to endure to remain steadfast and resolute. We have to be tied to something. Paul encouraged them and us to hold to the traditions that have been taught when Paul had been with them or had written to them about. See, the word for stand firm means a strong stance, rooted, and, and, and hold connotes clinging to. He wants us to stand strong and hold fast to the traditions which were revealed in Paul's words when he was with them or with his letter, which is the word of God. And what that means is, is what we can see here is that we must learn to stand firm in what we have been taught. We need to learn what the Bible says. How well do you know the Bible? It's not just for pastors and theologians. How well do you yourself know the Bible? You're to learn the scriptures. You're not always to rely on what your teachers say. You have to go back and check. Check what the word of, what they say. What I say, check it. Does it, does it go with what the Bible says? Now, it's interesting. I, I, I heard this plan at one time, and I like this. In order for us to get a grip on the Bible, okay, you've got to get a grip on the Bible, we have to do five things. Here's five fingers for you. First of all, you've got to hear the word. That's your thumb. That's your thumb. Now, you can't just hear it, can you, and hold it, 
right? Now, you could have your other finger here. You have, to, you have to hear it, but you also have to read it. Now, you could do that, but if this is a, I mean, it's hard to really get a grip on it with just these two fingers. But after you, you, read, you hear it, you read it, then you've got to learn how to study it. That makes it even more secure. And, and not only do you have to study it, you have to learn to memorize it and then meditate on it. Now you've got a full grip on it. But many of us just try to hear it. We can't hold off. We're just trying to hear it or just try to get these two fingers. We need all of them. We all need to become students of God's word to be able to hold on to the word of God. That's why he says you need to stand firm. Because he's saying then that you're going to have opposition. You're going to have people that come against you all the time. You're going to be at your workplace and your coworker is going to say, I don't want you to testify, or your boss is going to say, I don't want you to testify about Jesus. That's not for the workplace. Well, the scripture says that we're always to testify about Jesus, that it transcends even the workplace. It transcends everything. He says, you'll be fired if you, if you continue to do this or if you don't do what I ask you to do and they want you to compromise your morals and your integrity. Are you going to hold fast? Are you going to stand firm? Because that's the idea. He understood that they were going to face hostility, that they were going to be in situations where they could lose their income or that their spouse might leave them or that they could even be killed. And he's saying, stand firm to what you were taught. Hold on to it. Tie yourself to it. That's why I like that. You know, we're getting into... Uh, we're getting into tornado season, right? And we've shared this, this, the, the movie before. Have you seen that movie Twister? Remember that? It was like 20 years ago. And I, and I love that part of the movie. I, I still see it every time that I read about holding fast or holding fast to the promises of God. But there's that part where that tornado is imminent. And that twister is coming at them, and, and Bill Paxton's characters with Helen Hunt, and they're in this barn, and they realize that that barn is going to go up, and they run out to this other shed, and he comes in, and you know that it's going to get hit in just a second, and he sees these water pipes, and he says, they go down 30 feet. He takes off his belt, and he ties himself to it, and ties her to him, and at that moment, it hits, and the whole thing goes up in the air. Remember that? And you can see their body just flying in the air, holding onto it. That's how we're to be attached to the promises of God. We're to tie ourselves to them. No matter what tornado, what circumstance comes on in your life, in your workplace, in your home, and in your family, that you hold fast to what God's word says. Because you know why? Circumstance is going to change. There will be heretics and apostates and false teachers that find their way into the church that are going to try to turn you away. Just this morning, I was reading an article, came up online, and it was talking about how this, the United Church of Canada was handling one of their atheist pastors. There's an atheist pastor. It's an oxymoron. You're no longer a pastor if you're an atheist. And this person, this, and it was this woman who she's saying that I'm going to change everything. Well, you, you should be removed. You're a heretic. You're no longer a pastor. You're no longer, you're no longer, it's no longer a church. If your church doesn't believe in God, you call it whatever you want. See, this is what, we have circumstances, we have people, false teachers that are coming in. And Paul is saying, tie yourself to what you know, not the changing words that are coming in around you. And I get nervous every time I hear someone go, well, this teacher's teaching something new. When I hear the term new, when it comes to the 2,000-year-old faith, I have issue. Because that means it's heretical, and it's usually something that's not new. It's a heresy that's been repackaged. Paul understood how quickly that they could be turned away. And he's saying, tie yourself to the promises of God. Stand firm in what you have been taught. Now, Paul addressed their destination, but he concludes also with a comforting benediction. 
a benediction. Now, a benediction, we do it at the end of every service, but it is a blessing. It is a blessing upon people. And Paul is putting a blessing upon these people. He is asking God to be with the Thessalonians. And he's comforting them because he knew that they were, they were struggling. They were fearful. They were going through a very hard time. Paul says in verse 16, by the Spirit, he says, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. See, this benediction is a benediction of peace. It's the idea of comfort, consolation, solace. It's referring to peace, both eternal and in the temporal. It's a peace that transcends all understanding. He wanted God to comfort or give peace to their hearts in the here and now, and they were going to need peace. And it had to be a heavenly peace, one that transcended human understanding, as Paul had written about to the Philippians. See, as we grow in our walk with Christ, we will, we face inevitably, we will inevitably face turmoil, hardship. We're going to need God's peace. It's easy to get up in arms at what we have going on in our nation. So much evil, persecution on the rise, the attempt to marginalize or misalign God's people and relegate the, God's people to the fringes of society. And as that happens, we need to find an anchor. We need to have peace. We get amped up rather quickly when we see the world turn against us, and we should to a point. But we must not let our alarm at what is going on in the world keep us from our peace in Christ in the here and now. We need God's peace if we're going to make it through. Now, secondly, we need a good perspective. We need a good perspective. Notice the second part of verse 16. Good hope through grace. See, so we have hope, and not just hope of what is to come, but it's a good hope. A quality hope, one that is not going to be disappointing, but fulfilling. And it comes as a result of grace, the knowledge that what is to come doesn't come through us, but through what God has already done through Christ. And then him giving us unmerited favor. That's what grace is. God gives you his favor. We will fail. We're all going to fall at sin at some point in time. But God has found the victory and given us grace, a safety net of sanctification. And because of that, we have hope. Hope is amazing because of what it does. It gives life. It has been said that human beings can live for 40 days without food, four days without water, four minutes without air. But we cannot live for four seconds without hope. It's a great quote. Hope is amazing for it gives life. It has been said that human, that, I mean, it has been said that we can hold on to hope and it will give greater life. It will give encouragement. It will give strength. See, if we're trying to build our kingdom in the here and now on this side of eternity, then there is reason to despair. But when we realize that we have a heavenly kingdom that cannot be shaken, then we have a proper perspective at how we are to live in the here and now. Look at verse 17. Comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. He wants you to receive comfort, but, he also, but also be established in every good work and word. He wants us to be encouraged and find strength in the deeds we do for God and the things we say for God. 
In other words, he wants us to encourage us to fulfill our purpose. What is God's purpose for you? Why did God make you? What's he want to do through your life? Why did he save you? Why did he bring you here today on April 24th? What what is he trying to do through you? What does he want to to use you for? I mean, we have the general will of God revealed within the the word of God that we're uh, we're to be holy, that we are to be not conform to the, the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. That we are to, to love the least, the lowest, and the lost. That we are to take care of the most vulnerable within our society. That we are to love people in the way that God wants us to love. That we are to, to not look at the, the backgrounds. That we are to understand that we are to forgive one another, encourage one another, love one another. These are all part of the general will of God. But what is God's will for you specifically? What is it? See, Paul is writing to them to encourage them. He says, I pray that God might establish you in every good work and word. And I don't know what that is for your life, but God knows that I pray that he might establish and strengthen you and give you a firm foundation. The word established is the idea of cementing and and holding fast. That he might establish you and give you that right foundation that you might do what he has called you to not only do, but be. What has he called you to be? And what has he called you to do? One of the greatest passages that I remember reading in scripture was about King David when it says he fulfilled the purpose of God in his generation. I pray that we all might find that verse to be be true of our own lives, that we might fulfill the purpose that God has for us in our generation. Why does God have you where you're at? I mean, have you thought about it that way? That God sovereignly puts you in this place? I was reading yesterday in my quiet time, I was reading the book of Ruth. I love that. That's a great action-packed book. And in this book, you have Ruth, who was a Moabitess, going back to the land of Israel with her mother-in-law after her husband had died. And she clings to Naomi, her mother-in-law. And she asked to go into this field to, to glean the wheat, to be able to make some food money, because they were pretty much destitute. And widows especially were the most vulnerable within that society. And it says she went to the field of Boaz, And it's not by accident she made in that field because that was the closest kinsman redeemer. God had worked through that normal everyday circumstance to help provide her with the relationship that would result in the birth of a child who would end up being the grandfather of King David. And see, it's through the everyday things. God works through the everyday. Don't think so grand and fantastic that you can't think about beyond your everyday. Why has God called you to be in that position? Why has God called you to be at your school? Why does he call you to be in your neighborhood? Why has he called you to be at your workplace? Why has God called you to be in the relationships that you're in and the circumstances in which you find yourself? Why has God allowed you to have the experiences that you've had? Because he wants to use you for the glory of his name, that his word might go forth and his work might be established. It's not only through what we say about God and telling other people about him, it's how we show our love for God and connect with other people that they might too see the love of Christ, like with the friendship garden. It's a great example. What is God's purpose for you? I think many of us aren't experiencing the fullness of what God has for us. I think that we're not trying to strive to fulfill God's will for our lives. I don't think we're reading the word of God. And I think many of us aren't even praying. And we're not telling other peoples about who Jesus is. We're not living lives of holiness because we're too busy watching Netflix. God has called us to fight on. 
but we're too busy losing ourselves in our entertainments that we've forgotten our purpose to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us. See, God spoke to the Thessalonians and he's speaking to us. God wants us to fight on, to know that what we have in Christ is greater than anything that this world could offer. We must not forget who we are. Just as in the Lion King, remember that? After uh, Simba goes off and and he ends up, after the years, he grows up. Remember, he'd run away from his father, and, and he, he grows up. And then Rafiki appears to him, and, and they have this whole interchange, and he says, you've forgotten who you are. I think many of us are, have, we have Christian amnesia, spiritual amnesia. We've forgotten who we are in Christ. And as someone told my wife the other day, she was on the phone with a friend. Uh, my wife was despairing about something, and it's a good friend, an old friend. And she goes, she goes, I love you, Melissa, but you're a situational atheist. Which means that you, are, you believe in God except in circumstance, certain circumstances in which you just don't think God's going to act. I think many of us are like that. We say that we believe in God, but where is the reality of God within our lives? That's the truth of what God's calling us to. He's saying that I want you to find your identity in and through me, and I want you to fight on. God spoke to the Thessalonians, and he's speaking to us. He wants us to fight on, to know what we have in Christ is greater than anything else this world could offer, and we must be the ones to stand up for those who cannot stand for themselves, to fight sin, social injustice, and to stand for life in all of its forms. God is calling us to fight on no matter what advances our enemy seems to make in our society, no matter how much we, it might cloud, he might cloud and confuse people to turn them from Christ. We must fight on, clinging to the word of God, knowing that what we have in him is greater than anything that this world has to offer. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for what you revealed unto us. And Lord, I pray that we might live in the truth of your word, that we might be established and hold firm to cling tightly to the promises that you've given unto us, for the traditions that we have received, the teachings that we have received in and through your word. And Lord, for those who are struggling, they're feeling very weary and tired and they want to give in, Lord, help them to fight on. No matter what influence we might lose, what might have come against us, may we fight on. May we fight, just as Churchill mentioned, they fought on the beaches and in the streets, on the hills and in the valleys. Lord, may we fight on in our neighborhoods and in our schools for the glory of your name. And Lord, let our lives continually testify to that fact. Though every man may be proven a liar, but we are reminded uh, of the words that one word of truth shall outweigh the whole world. And that word of truth is Jesus. May we continually testify to his greatness, not only in our words, but in the very fabric of our lives. Help us to be able to fight sin, to not give in to the, the things of this world, but may we fight against them as we cling to you and what it is that you have for us in Christ. Because we know what awaits us and what we have in you is greater than anything this world has to offer. Use us for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.